0: Fortunately, I'm a storyteller. I'm not a historian. I'm a storyteller, and the word history, because that's what I've chosen to work in, is mostly made up of the word story plus high, and that's a pretty good way to begin a story, right?
1: Welcome to Ye Gods. I'm Scott Carter. Embedded in the Two dozen hours of Ken Burns' baseball is the famous Jacques Barzun quote, whoever wants to know the heart and mind of America had better learn baseball. Well, I think now whoever wants to know the heart and mind of America had better watch Ken Burns' films. His body of work is a moving picture portrait gallery of who we've been and who we are. No contemporary artist has ever succeeded more By trusting so much in the American public's curiosity and attention span, Ken, it is a real honor for me to have you here today. It's my pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me. As we start, I want to make a reference not to one of your films, but to the five-hour masterclass you did on documentaries. And there is this very tough interview that you did with a, uh, this is for your World War II series. He had a very tough interview with a vet-turned-college professor named Paul Fussell, and you talk about different techniques you got him, tried to do to make him less nervous, and then you finally say, and you show us how you were able to succeed with him, and then you say, and that is when an interview becomes gold. We watch you pause for five seconds. We can see the wheels turning in your mind, And then I think you probably go off whatever you were planning to do in the script and you say, can I just say something? And then you say, using the word gold is so incredibly insulting to what he just gave me. And you say, this is not what I am about. I'm about some reciprocity. He gave me a bit of his soul.
0: Yeah, that was an amazing interview. I needed him to break some spell of anxiety or desire to be someone other than he was. And I realized that he was talking about experiences when he was 19 years old, but he considered himself an old man because he'd been on the front line in France for six months. And the average life expectancy of a second lieutenant, which he was, was something like 14 days. You were either killed, severely wounded, or you went crazy. And he'd been there six months without taking a shower or brushing his teeth or changing his clothes. And the back lines were only 100 yards behind, but he was too good at what he did. And I finally, he's a great writer too, great, great teacher, kind of a ringer in our film. And I I just, I finally said, you saw bad stuff. And the 19 year old came back and he gave us that, but, but using the world word gold stuck in my craw because there is that sort of sense that all we are is acquisitive beings, that we're extractive, that we're everything's transactional. And rather than the reciprocity that's required to take a good photograph or to mine the, the, the soul of somebody rather than the information or the data. You're not just plugging in a, a cable and, and sucking the, the person dry. There had to be something. I was ashamed of myself for using the term gold because we're not in that business whatsoever. So I was um, it was a master class in how not to, not, to, not to think about your subjects.
1: But what was also useful for any student or anybody watching this is you caught yourself and you immediately in real time corrected yourself and you made a point to anybody who's who's seeking to learn from you that in the same way you talk about the importance of listening and staying exactly in the moment, you then, in that moment, you demonstrated that I only recently, my wife and I watched for the first time the Mayo Clinic and I... Was just amazed by it. It's a film about how a global citadel of healing rose out of a cornfield. But I thought about how similar it is to what you've done with your career. This is a film about a painstaking execution of an idea that presumes or has faith in the fairness of the universe, that doing good is going to be rewarded. And your film subtitle is Faith, Hope, Science, Three Words Often Not Combined. Never combined, yeah. (laughs) And I want to ask, how does your faith inform your work? I'm not really sure, but it is in that
0: intersection of being present and being willing to listen, to not superimpose preconception onto a subject, to celebrate a kind of the the reward is the work itself not not even there's there's not a faith in the, the goodness is is what's required to to put it in in terms of us the man hours the woman hours the the attention the love to everything i mean someone asked me what my films were about and i said oh love you know that was what it all kind of reduced to yeah there're stories and yes there's are stories about the united states and yes they're complicated stories and some of it is dark and some of it is light but you know, the only real equation is what my yard sign says outside my house, which is love multiplies. And I've, I sort of, I like that. And so there's a complicated uh, relationship with that. Doesn't mean that we're not fully devoted to trying to parse the particular moment that we've charged ourselves with coming to terms with. But there is a sense that how one is, how one conducts one's affairs in the moment with the people you're working with, with the audience that you're trying to communicate to, is is it. That in and of itself is the whole raison d'etre. It could be building a stone wall. It could be, you know, making sure an orchard is is in good shape. It's raising a child. It's, it's making historical documentary films about American history. You know, there's, insert here, I, I just have certain outward circumstances that led me to do this, but but at the same time, I think that the essence of what we've been able to do is informed by not just mine, by, but by a collective sense of various people's faith, how they understand that. And I'm sure people who work with me who would insist that they are out and out atheists and we shouldn't be talking about anything else, and that's okay too.
1: It's interesting you used the word love just now to describe what your films are about, because I've also read interviews where you talk about that a lot of what's in your films is the fact that you lost your mother when you were very young. Not only that, but she was sick most of the time that you knew her. Yes. And I read one interview where you said that the films are all about her. Yeah, yeah. And that everything stems from the, that tragedy of losing her at such a young age. I came to your work through the Civil War and I did not see it when it was first broadcast. I watched it when it was first on VHS. So one could, one could do that era's version of binging. Right. My wife had just had a miscarriage and I took time off from work and we watched those 11 hours together and we had just been um, there had been a sense of a breach in what we conceived as our union producing. Yeah. And there was something so cathartic. And we cried so much through it. But I feel like your work helped us get through this period.
0: So there's a line that my brother wrote in the script that was principally written by Jeffrey Ward and reckon and me. And it says, between 1861 and 1865, Americans made war on each other and killed each other in great numbers, if only to become the kind of country that could no longer conceive how that was possible. You know, maybe today we're sort of inching back in our own sort of self-destructive, incremental way. At another point, it's pointed out that before the Civil War, when speaking about our country, we would say the United States are grammatically correct, a plural noun, with a with a plural verb. But after the Civil War, we said the United States is, which if you think about it is ungrammatical, but we say it. And so what the Civil War did was it made us a one thing. It didn't solve all the things, but it made us a one thing, at least for a while, at least for the 160 years since the Gettysburg Address. And I think that that's that's part of it. My mom was sick from the earliest time I can remember. She died a couple months short of my 12th birthday when I was 11 years old. Many, many years later, I decided to become a filmmaker when I saw my dad cry for the first time after she died, not when she was sick, not when she died, not at the funeral, but, but six months later when I was 12, we were watching a movie together called Odd Man Out and he cried. And I just instantaneously said, I'm going to be a filmmaker because he's, this this medium had given him an emotional safe haven that nothing else in his life had provided him with. Then I fortunately went to Hampshire College and got mixed up with documentary filmmakers who showed me that, documentary still photographers actually, who showed me that there's as much drama in what is and what was as anything of the human imagination. And that just combined with a latent interest in history. But many years later, in the middle of my own personal crisis, 39 years old, I think, I realized that all my life, the date of her death, April 28th, had been approaching and then receding. I had never been present. And I told my now late father-in-law that I seemed to be keeping my mother alive. And he said, and I told him what it was. And then he listed off several things like, you blew out the candles on your birthday to wishing that she'd come back. I said, yeah, how do you know? And he listed two or three other things. He looked at me and he said, "Well, look what you do for a living. You wake the dead. You make Abraham Lincoln and Jackie Robinson come alive. Who do you think you're really trying to wake up?" And it was, you know, fortunately we, we don't we can't dismiss it as dime store psychology because it was coming from a fairly eminent psychologist. Um but it stuck with me that that's what I had been doing and that's what I would continue to do is try to wake the dead. And that's an honor. And now there's not a day that goes by where the number 4208 doesn't come up either in the afternoon or the early morning when the demons have woken you up or my kids will notice it and call it in and we all say her name out loud. It's a wonderful thing. And I've never missed the actual date now in 30 years, but it was, uh, it was an interesting thing to understand how you could um, repress or just delete so much pain and figure out how to go on. And that what I'd found to go on was bring me back to what the original trauma was. And of course, the Civil War is, is the most important event in the history of the United States when we tore ourselves in two in order to say, is instead of are. And I, I love that. I mean, I was raising money once for the for the film, and I was with a corporation, General Motors, and they said, what's it about? And I said, I told them that before the Civil War, we said the United States are, and after the Civil War, we said the United States is. I want to find out how that R became an is. And they said, great, how much do you need? You know, it was like, it was the high concept that, that, that got it. But I think we're all drawn to those kind of paradoxes, the undertow, that permit us to um, see things, you know, I've got a a sign in my editing room in neon, modest cursive and it says it's complicated because I'm trying to remind myself as well as my colleagues that no matter how good a scene is and there's not a filmmaker in the world that when the scene is good, you don't wanna touch it, that you have to touch it because particularly in the area that I make films and it's always being complicated by new information or discovering a new fact and you really have to go we need to be open to that and to, to be present in that moment. And, and even many of the processes that we work on are about being present of, of hearing the film as if it's brand new. I'm your represent, I'm the representative of the audience in every screening. I just go, why, 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 why are you assuming I know that? Why are you telling me that? But in a very basic thing, it's being present to what's being said.
1: Did your family go to church?
0: My mother was a devout Episcopalian. My father is from Episcopalian and I think Methodist stock, and was a kind of lazy agnostic. You know, he figured that God would, if God was, if there actually was a God, then God would know why he didn't believe in God, and that everything would be okay. And that's why I call it a little bit lazy. It's a, it's a, it's a bit of a cop out. My mother, I can remember singing out of key in church. And so, you know, I tended to side with my dad because it got me out of going to church. But I, but there was, I sang in the choir in the last year of my mom's life. And it was, it was not a a major part. It was really in college that I discovered a hunger. Other people helped awaken it in me and got involved in studying some esoteric philosophies, some Christian, some others. I eventually studied for many, many years the fourth way, which was started by a Armenian Georgian mystic named Gurdjieff and sort of promulgated to the West by a Russian mathematician named Lespensky. And so I was involved in a group for many, many years in the 70s. And then I've had to kind of on my own cobble together some kind of classically American deist Emersonian catechism that involves nature and all of the good things the United States of America has added to the spiritual equation and tried not to uh, adopt any of the doctrinaire and repressive aspects. Not that I don't self-impose some Calvinistic discipline here and there.
1: The one time that we've met, it was when you appeared on the Bob Costa show for HBO, and I, I was a producer on that, and we got to talking, and I asked you if you ever are tempted to go back and re-edit any of your movies, and I, I don't know if you remember what y- your reply was, not a single frame, and then you said, not even Jefferson.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, because so it's Jefferson. The reason why is because we would made the film. And of course, the big when you're making a film in the late 20th century, early 21st century, everything's about sex. So the big question hanging over a film about Thomas Jefferson is the did he or didn't he with regard to Sally Hemings. And we had interviewed Joe Ellis, the great scholar, who at that point was absolutely certain, in his bones, sincerely that, having studied Jefferson and called him the American Sphinx, so there's a admission that there's something unknowable about him that he couldn't possibly have done this. And we'd also interviewed a man named Madison Hemings, who was a who insisted that he was a great, 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 whatever it was, grandson of Jefferson, and a union with Sally Hemings, his slave, and. Then we had John Hope Franklin, and and it was sort of like the father, the son, and the Holy Ghost. Franklin said, it doesn't matter. He owned her. He could have done anything with her. And I think that, that we forget that the very act of the ownership of another human being trumps even the dynamics of of all the other issues. And so the film survives because almost immediately after it was released in 97, the DNA evidence was conclusively proved that Sally Hemmings and Thomas Jefferson had had offspring together, which is, you know, part and parcel of the complexity of the country that we've inherited and that I've inherited as as subject matter and and which I have to say I'm proud of not flinching from sort of diving in in almost every single one of the films right smack into the middle of that god-awful contradiction that the man who could distill a century of enlightenment thinking into one sentence that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal could have owned hundreds of human beings in his life and not really seen the contradiction of the hypocrisy, or more important, freed any, but maybe one or two in his lifetime. And it's just this is the sort of both the literal and the symbolic dynamic that he set in motion that has had obviously this tortured history, but also a spectacular history. Our art form, jazz, comes out of a community which is all about freedom and improvisation. This, this art form comes out of a community that has a peculiar experience, the scholar uh, Gerald Early said in our jazz series, the peculiar experience of being unfree in a free land. Boy, that means you gotta, you got to improvise a hell of a lot more than anybody else. And, and let's, just, let's face facts, too, Scott, because there's a reality right now. You and I don't think about going to the convenience store as an existential event, but black Americans have to because a lot of people don't come back from going to the convenience store because they're black.
1: Still. And I think back to the James Parton comment in 1874 that if Jefferson was wrong, America is wrong. If America is right, Jefferson was right. I think a lot of people now think because of slavery, Jefferson was wrong. Is America also wrong?
0: It's not a binary thing. It's neither and both is the is the infuriating answer to that. Jefferson is right and he is wrong, and we are right and we are wrong. And that's, it doesn't even have to do with the United States of America. It has to do with almost all human phenomena. Ecclesiastes said, what has been will be again, what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun, which has both an optimistic and a pessimistic side to it, right? The human nature doesn't change. What, human nature doesn't change? And so we see the rhymes of history as Mark Twain is supposed to have seen. nothing repeats itself, of course, because it's all unique. We're not condemned to repeat what we don't remember. That's lovely and and attributed mostly to George Santayana, but Ecclesiastes gets it right. you know. Mm-hmm. And so all of these things are there. And so you're looking for facts. You're looking for that complication for the undertow. Winton said something. Winton Marcella said something to me in jazz. He said, Sometimes a thing and the opposite of a thing are true at the same time, and I, when he said that to me, I thought, "Okay, thank you. I now have, I have a a linguistic box in which I can help contain all of so much of what I've been trying to pursue, or, or give it a not a name because that sometimes ruins it, but just to be able to tolerate that contradiction or that that thing has been." hugely part of why i think the films have been good and i think they've been successful because they hit different notes simultaneously you know humor is supposed to be you know hitting the yes and no at the same time which means that we are all have a built-in kind of understanding of a kind of zen-like yes and no at the same time and that's that's really important because right now history becomes a weapon, history becomes propaganda, history becomes whatever it is. And it's just a story. It's just a really complex. I mean, fortunately, I'm a storyteller. I'm not a historian. I'm a storyteller. And the word history, because that's what I've chosen to work in, is mostly made up of the word story plus
1: high. And that's a pretty good way to begin a story, right? There was a word that you used when we talked that I have thought about a lot and it speaks to the full picture that you insist upon giving viewers of history both good and bad what we would like it to have been and what it was which was opacity yeah that we develop this relationship to great historical figures that it neither serves them nor serves us well we expect heroes to be perfect right and we're so sad that we live in a
0: time when there are no heroes right well, this is not where the idea that if you take, say, just the Greek classical sense of a hero, a hero, they put up the gods to advertise, these are bigger than human humans, so we're going to write their 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 stories large. Achilles has his heel and his hubris to go along with his great strength. It's not perfection. It's actually the negotiation, sometimes the war within a being with their strengths and their weaknesses, and it is the negotiation or the war that is the heroism. That's the heroism. And so that suddenly liberates you to understand the fact that there are heroes all around us. They're just not, they're not seduced or we shouldn't be seduced by the bold-faced names of our celebrity culture or by so-called famous people. We realized when we were making a film about World War II, the tagline was, there are no ordinary lives, right? Why does a farm kid from Iowa land at Omaha Beach? He's not getting anything for it. He's being paid bupkis he's not getting he's not looting he's not getting treasure he's not getting riches he's not acquiring empire he's there for an idea whether he knows it or maybe he's just there for his buddies and himself and it's too hard to turn back now that's okay too it's just more interesting than all of treacly sanitized madison avenue superimpositions that we
1: perpetually impose on our past Okay, right after this break, we're going to hear how Ken, after making films for over 40 years, is now more productive than ever. And we'll hear his recommendation of the three things that can help handle the curveballs that life sometimes throws at us. So do not go away. Ken, in July, you're going to be turning 70. (laughs) Yeah. I turned 70 last April. Are there aspects of life that are richer for you now? Oh, my goodness.
0: Yeah, I think I've I've been inherited from the tragedy of my childhood, a very, very anxious person, and I still am. But the anxiety, I've learned like judo to sort of leverage it in a way. And there's still a kind of high-speed need that if I were given a 1,000 years to live, which I will not, I wouldn't run out of topics. So there's, there's an increased urgency now. And at the same time, there's also a beginning to have shifted into a kind of third or fourth gear where you know how to trust a process, just trust a process, right? And then, and that means, and then, and then, and then it means that you can't, do the thing today that you won't be able to do for a couple of years. You can worry about that if you want to, but it's it's a waste of time. And so I'm working on many more projects than I've ever at any given time working on. And I think a little bit of the reason why there's bandwidth to do that is that some of the mind parasites and the, and the voices are silenced, or at least a little bit quieter to permit you to continue to do the the stuff that I love. I mean, there, I love my family and my kids and, and in my work, there is nothing better than making a film better. There's nothing better than an edit session where it's great. I used to I used to get up on my haunches. Jeff Ward reminded me the other day when I get excited. <laughs> he said every day, you'd two or four times a day, you'd get up on your haunches because we'd figure out a way out of some, you know, morass or some quicksand or, or, you know, you put something that was at the beginning at the end or you took out something you loved more than anything and was going to be there at the end and you took it out and threw it away. And something got better and it's just there's there's an exhilaration to that that I experience every day and in, in whatever form it is
1: that's one of the valuable lessons getting comfortable with the the necessary stages you need to go through to complete anything worthwhile and some of those stages are going to necessarily be misery inducing to the artist yeah well there's a razor's edge
0: right that we're on we're all on I mean it, That's, that's part of it. And so, you know, I feel lucky in that one aspect of the work that I've accepted is that it will have this kind of beneficial torment to it that there will be, I remember in high school, I had the pretensions to be a poet and I dug through a box a few months ago and it had a literary magazine. I was so embarrassed. They printed a couple of poems. One wasn't bad, but there was one that said, time is on my side and it said, I have a watch that I keep in my hip pocket. When I sit down to rest, it digs into my ass. (sighs) What kind of pretentious stuff? And yet at the same time, you know, I had already back then, I mean, you know, how it is when you're 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, you know, everything. And so it used to be when I was in the editing room, we, I used to work my way down the the seniority tale. you know, you'd first turn to this person who has the wisdom and they'd give you their comments. And then at the end you'd ask the interns. Now we start with the interns because I re- I realized I want to hear from somebody who who knows everything because I knew everything back then. <laughs> now I know nothing. And I want to find out what someone who confidently knows everything knows because they can give you as great a gifts as the people who are, you know, struggling as as I am at this uh, later time in our lives with some of these big fundamental
1: questions about. And there's a charming compassion that one has for that kid who writes that poem. It, you fully recognize who that person
0: is and you really hope that that insouciance, which is the best thing you could say about it, was there and it's partly there. I mean, every once in a while, I, I have to spend a lot of time in the city and I find myself bounding up the stairs out of the subway taking two, three steps at a time the way I have always done. And I like, there is a direct connection to the kid who wrote that poem and even earlier to the eight year old and whatever. And I just go, "Whoa, there's, it's not the same. There's every, a bit, complete rearrangement of all the molecules, but there's that something that is enduring. And I, I look for that in so many different places the walks I take and the work that I do and the relationships I have, something happens, something's freed up in a moment, and you feel a kind of connection and a continuity and a kind of quiet. And those, those are kind of the rewards of the day right now.
1: Uh, do you think when we die that there is a, a reckoning, a judgment for how we have been in our lives? I don't know, uh, Scott.
0: I, I don't think there's a hell. I think there's a heaven. But I don't think it's the kind of airport lounge that people think it is, where you're no longer sitting with the riffraff, right? It's like, <laughs> you know, I, I think the only the only hell is the you're one... You're saying it's the ambassador's club. Right, exactly. It's not the ambassador's club. There's something else. There's something finer. The hell is here on earth. We is what we create. And so I don't think there's a reward, this, I think that we're a combination of spirits and souls just trying to figure out what we're supposed to be doing. We're odd collections of, of possibilities. And then you kind of get retired. And I don't know, I'm obviously both petrified, but also very curious. And um, I'm interested in studying the various disciplines and their relationship. To it and what faith means with regard to welcoming your death and I've seen some of the highest human beings that I've ever come across in my life fear death at the end when they when they were literally days and hours away from passing away and it was shocking because I figured well this person at least would have it all figured out and there would be some calm acceptance and then I've seen people who had a kind of seemingly distracted, way of life couldn't possibly have been connected to some go with a kind of peace and grace and dignity that just sort of said, looking forward to the next chapter.
1: Is, is there a, in the course of your life and career, is, is there one quote that you'll often find coming back to you when you face especially stressful occasions? I'm going to fear that I have plagiarized this, but there's
0: something that everyone in my family and most of my friends believe that I invented, and I think I've come to believe that maybe I have, or at least synthesized it. And I call them the three things," and I gave them away just two nights ago to someone who was really struggling. But the three things are: this won't last. Get help from others. Be kind to yourself. There's no yes buts to any of those. And I've had to, whether I've plagiarized them or not, I've had to develop that with my own life in, in, in really horrific and intimate and day-to-day ways. And I've been able to try to pass it along to others and to be helpful. And, I've, and it, it, it works. It, it helps people. And um, whatever this is, it will not last. Everything is in change, in flux. That's the obvious one. And there can be some comfort in that. And then, you know, to get help from others is almost exactly what the equation is about. You're not talking to somebody unless they're seeking help or they've somehow signaled that they need some help. The hardest one, of course, is to be kind to yourself. And that's the one we're all struggling to uh figure out what that means and how to, how to apply it. And more often it's a, it's the opposite, right? You're helping others and you find that that repays in kindness to yourself, but it's very hard because life is such a difficult negotiation to, to be kind to oneself. But the three things I guess are the things that I come back.
1: Besides your own work, if you could recommend to everyone one work of art for them to experience, a song, a movie, a play, a book, a a sculpture, painting, that you think would be transformative to them because maybe it was for you, what would that be?
0: Well, you know, Richard Powers, a novelist, said, "Um, the best arguments in the world won't change a single person's point of view. The only thing that can do that is a good story. So once you've given the story, it's it, it's then up to you, whether it's received or not, whether it changes at the edges or tra- wholly transforms you and whatever. So all the arts have a way to do that. Obviously, there's so many pieces of music that is transformative to me. And it, it there's things that, at different times. There's literature that's great, that I enjoy, and it's transcendent. So it, 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 there's not saying there's one thing, but what we ought to be doing with our lives is seeking the transformational rather than the transactional. And unfortunately we live at this particular moment in a, a binary prison made up of our ones and zeros in our computer world and our good and bad red state, blue state, yes, no rich, poor, North South, black, white, male, female, gay, straight, political, social world that we live in imprisoned by those constraints. And, um, it's really hard to elect for the transformative. And so you can find it anywhere. I was looking at a painting the other day by Kandinsky and I went, gee, man, this is my new favorite painting. And then of course I'm working on a film, first non-American topic uh, on Leonardo da Vinci and his last supper is like cinema, right? It's just, it isn't one second. It's many, many. And, you know, I was on stage with my longtime writer and, and a principal collaborator over the last forty years, Jeffrey Ward. He was talking about himself in the late '40s when the popular music was pretty bad, and that he had he had contracted polio, and um, his life was pretty big. He heard Louis Armstrong's West End Blues, which had been written a decade before, which was like just like quantum mechanics. It's just like you know and so anything by Louis armstrong is that you know this is this is the most important thing if you're an american if you're a citizen of the world there's you know nothing i went every nobody agreed in, in jazz nobody agreed about anything except that armstrong was a gift from god or an angel people would say over and over again you figure it from the people who traveled with him as family members that you know scholars though people of different scholarly schools they all loved him and I once bumped into a woman who, for lack of the better word, was a an aura reader or some psychic of some kind. And I mentioned that everybody seemed to say he was this gift from God or an angel. And she closed her eyes and she went, "Biggest wings I've ever seen." <laughs> you know, I can just imagine <laughs> that having. For playing a good game, being a good person, you might get a chance to hear this incredible cutting contest between Armstrong and Gabriel. And Armstrong will always win um, <laughs> because his, he was just that pure love being that we started our conversation with. You know, it is just love multiplies. That's it. That's the, that's the way the universe works.
1: Ken Burns, long may you live, l- that long may you work that forever we may be enriched. Whenever I hear that there is a new Ken Burns film that's about to air, I inly rejoice. (laughs) I want to thank you for giving us your time and your soul, which we consider to be sacred. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. It's been my pleasure.
1: Ken is fond of Mark Twain's quote that history never repeats itself, but it does often rhyme. We now seem headed for a second Cold War with Russia, a follow-up to the one that hovered over my childhood. And it's a reminder of how choices we make can sometimes play out. I was 10 in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the near flashpoint of the first Cold War. The U.S. had deployed nuclear missiles to Italy and Turkey to contain its ideological foe, the Soviet Union. In October, Russia countered by sending warships with ballistic missiles to its communist satellite in Castro's Cuba. Tensions escalated when President John F. Kennedy, who'd inspired my Halloween costume the year before, blocked the boats from reaching Havana just 90 miles off Florida's coast. We in Tucson, Arizona, where I was a fourth grader at Lineweaver Elementary, heard that if World War III broke out, our local Air Force base, Davis-Monthan, would make us, after Washington, D.C., Russia's top target. So we drilled it hiding under our desks, but, uh, That seemed like a very flimsy defense in the event of a mushroom cloud. An enduring legend of the Cuban Missile Crisis is that during those 13 days, President Kennedy received two successive telegrams from Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. One was belligerent. The other was conciliatory. Many give credit to Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, the president's younger brother, for proposing that America reply to the friendly message and ignore the hostile one, and that they did, and a crisis was diffused and soon resolved. All of us, we the living, face that same kind of choice in life, since none of us know the answer to life's mystery is there a God or not. Why not live life ignoring the possibility of a cold galaxy of random meaninglessness and instead assume the sustaining benevolence of a loving God. What are your thoughts? You can email me at yegodspodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com. Your email could be belligerent or conciliatory. I may answer one, but not the other. Thank you for listening and catch you next time.